Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, my wife and I sure enjoyed uh, the service this morning. I noticed that uh, almost every church has difficult people in it. Uh, we met one this morning. Uh, she came in the door and looked like such a sweet, nice lady, Mrs. Isom. And uh, so she said, uh, I told her my name, and she said, uh, well, are you a guest here or just what? And my wife said, well, he's, he's preaching here. She said, oh, and she sized me up. And I said, I might sing too. She said, do we want to hear it? <laughs> Just like that. So I got my feelings hurt a little bit, but kept going anyway. So anyway, uh, we had a delightful time talking to her and uh, enjoyed that. And she said uh, that she had me pictured to be uh, somebody else that she had in mind. She said, I've been praying for the wrong face. <laughs> Uh, it's a blessing. So anyway, I mean that all good, all well is a blessing. All right. Now, <clears throat> um, back in 2009, like millions of Americans, uh, back in 2009, I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So you know when you got that, you're supposed to have your eyes checked and all of that uh, on a regular basis. And so we were going along and uh, you know, keeping a pretty full schedule, and I was about a, a year behind on my visit to the eye doctor, you know, and so my wife kept nagging, not nagging, encouraging me to uh, <laughs> make an appointment and get to the doctor and, and said, because, honey, she said, you're, you're not reading the scripture right. You're, I know you mean to read it, and you want to read it right, but you're missing words or misreading and she said then driving I can tell you don't see the signs that's not a good thing either but uh, so she said you better get that done you better get done I said yeah I'm going to I'm going to so we went to a meeting uh, that I was preaching down in New Mexico and at this church it was the very first uh, time I'd been to that church so except for the pastor who I'd known since he was much younger and uh, a couple of the young people that had been to Heartland Baptist Bible College, I didn't know the people there, they didn't know me. So it's the first service Sunday morning and I'm getting a, I'm standing there preaching. And uh, that church had it like this, two steps. Now we always got another step over here, but uh, it had these steps. And uh, I'm in the fury of preaching and I'm getting ready to make this incredibly what are you laughing about, Brother Jeremy? Uh, incredibly uh, dynamic point in this sermon. And so it's an auditorium, not, not nearly as wide as this, about as deep as this. And so I'm going to make this point. So I'm going to step down to the floor to make this point and look them right in the eyeball and drive this point home. Well, my bifocals and my situation played tricks on me. And I was standing here instead of there. So when I took a step to the floor, I made it to the floor, all right. But I stumbled over the step, I fell down, and I mean, it was, it was a terrible crash. And I landed down here, my Bible landed over there, and I'm making, I, I never stopped speaking, I was still making this point, you know. And I, I guess I thought maybe they wouldn't notice or something, so. When I stood up there looking at me like, should this old man even be out here preaching, you know? And so if I could have, I'd have crawled right under the pews and right to the back and gone out. But anyway, uh, so after that, my wife uh, just kind of carefully brought it up. 
you think we ought to make an appointment and get this thing uh, taken care of. So about six months later, I did. I rushed right down to the doctor and got that taken care of. Now, the reason I'm telling you that, it has to do with our text. And it has to do with the bad uh, judgment that can take place when you are malfocused, when you do not see clearly. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples who at a very early stage in their fellowship of Jesus have gotten malfocused. Now let's read in Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's among my favorite preaching exercises of all time is to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is right in the middle of that Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, verse 22 and 23 are particularly important. And uh, to the preachers in this room and Bible students, I'll just say, in my opinion, just based upon what I've heard and read uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, seldom is verse 22 and 23 given the attention they deserve, uh, understanding the significance of these verses to what Jesus is teaching. Now look at verse 22. He said, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness... How great is that darkness, exclamation mark. Not a question. It's a, it's a strong statement. If therefore the light that is in to be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now notice the second time he uses this line. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Parentheses. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. End of parentheses. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need 
of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought, third time, take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your precious word. We can't, I can't imagine why we would assemble here tonight if it were not for the fact that you have given us thy word, preserved, inspired, alive, quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I pray that you would bless now this effort to proclaim your word. I want to rightly divide the word of truth. I want, oh God, that to be in a place that where your Holy Spirit could be strong at work and that you would accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word tonight. I thank you for this particular passage. Of course, as we have stated, the entire Bible we thank you for it, and there are some that just are, are like mountain peaks of a mountain range. And the Sermon on the Mount, to me, is a mountain peak in a, in a vast and marvelous, incredible mountain range called the Bible. Here is the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching, the words of Jesus on what it means to be a disciple, a follower of his. So bless this time now. Make it profitable and helpful as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless. Get a little drink here and we'll get into the sermon. I called a special attention to verse 22 and 23. And it's very clear here as Jesus <clears throat> is teaching his disciples. I, I like to call the Sermon on the Mount in the discipleship class with Jesus. In other words, Jesus is basically saying to the disciples, he's basically saying, if you're going to follow me and be my disciple, here's what it will look like. The Sermon on the Mount and what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I will remind you that while I have no question that there were multitudes in his hearing, that most of the multitudes, many of whom it is stated later in the Gospel of John, many of whom turned and followed him no more. Many of whom were there because they received bread or because they uh, were on the receiving end of these miracles. And when Jesus taught some things that they didn't quite uh, uh, like or appreciate nor understand, then the Bible says that many of them turned and followed him no more. And so Jesus is not teaching a vast multitude uh, what, they, what is expected of them from his father. But he is teaching his disciples in the hearing of other people. But this is for those that would be his followers. And uh, in the midst of this teaching, he talks to them about the eye. And he says that there is such a thing as a single eye. Now the single eye, uh, check this out, you can study it out. The single eye is a healthy eye. The eye that is able to focus. If the eye is single, it means it is healthy. You're able to focus. You should be able to take a couple of steps without falling down. Somebody help me here. Unless you're just extremely awkward, you know. But you should be able to see it and be able to function right. You should be able to navigate. You should be able to drive up and down the road. Many people out there have eye problems apparently. 
But anyway, uh, you should be able to read the signs and the speed limit and the whole business. You should be able to function, navigate, and get along fine. If you have the single eye. On the other hand, Jesus said, verse 23, that there is the evil eye. And the evil eye is the eye that is beset by some kind of a malady, something that interferes. Uh, the little story I told you a while ago, when I finally did make it to my doctor, uh, Dr. Gary, Gary Fox, his dad had been a deacon at uh, Southwest Baptist Church, and Gary himself is a Christian man. I, I really like him. He's a good man, good brother. And uh, so I was telling Gary about my fall there. He said, well, that's interesting. He said, uh, Brother Sam, I've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and as you know, in Matthew chapter 6, there are two verses in there that would be particularly of interest to me as an eye doctor. And he said, so you have the single eye and you have the evil eye. So as he's examining my eyes, he said, you want, would you like a uh, layman's version of what's taking place to your eye? And this is what takes place to many people, uh, uh, many eyes of people your age. And I didn't appreciate him bringing the age thing up, but he did. So he said, uh, here's what happens. He said, through the process of time, he says, uh, while we are able to see because of rays of light that come into our eye, the rays come in. He said, if you could just imagine uh, gazillions of little tiny arrows out there that are very sharp. And those are the rays of lighting. They're coming in. They're hitting the lens of the eye. And it goes from the lens of the eye to the retina and the retina to the optical nerve. And the optical nerve takes it to the brain. And the brain says, I see. Now, this is a simplified and layman's version of it. But he said, basically, that's what happens over and over. Rays of light come in, hits the lens of the eye, lens transfers it to the retina, retina to the optical nerve. Optical nerve goes back to the brain and we process what we see. And I, I appreciated that simplified version of it. But he said, now here's what happens. Through the process of time, there begins to be uh, interference. There begins to be a growth. I talked to another doctor that's an eye surgeon, and he said that this growth can handle, uh, happen under the lens of the eye as well as over the lens of the eye. But he said, basically what happens is a growth comes and uh, there begins to be obstruction that comes on the lens of the eye. So he said that the rays keep coming in, they keep coming in, they keep coming in. Only now when they hit the lens of the eye, uh, they have to make their way through that obstruction that is there. And it sort of, he said, picture like this, flattens the end of the arrow so that it goes ahead and makes it to the retina. And the retina, retina to the optical nerve and then to the brain. But what is sent to the brain is blurred so that you can't process it well. Well, at the time he was telling me that, if I took my glasses off, I couldn't tell who was out in the congregation. And uh, if I took my glasses off, I couldn't even tell you what book I was in, even with a pretty good-sized print Bible. And so I, I had this malady. I had an evil eye. I always chuckle about that because my mother used to warn my sisters about boys with an evil eye. Well, she wasn't talking about this kind of evil eye, but that would have to do with most boys, I suppose. But nonetheless, uh, this evil eye is the eye that has this malady or this obstruction or this um, uh, illness or sickness that is there that uh, keeps a person from being able to have clear vision. When you don't have clear vision, you might not be able to handle two steps. When you don't have clear vision, you're going to make some wrong judgment. You can't navigate around a room or in a book or whatever the case might be. And so Jesus is saying all of this for obvious reasons. His disciples are not seeing clearly. 
they are uh, affected by an evil eye and Jesus knows them, they are making bad judgment, bad decisions, bad, de bad choices. They are not seeing clearly. All right, now, the reason we know that is because I pointed out, Jesus said to them three times, take no thought, saying, take no thought, saying, therefore, take no thought. All right, now, Jesus again, obviously, is not teaching his disciples, don't you think? That's not what he's saying. Of course he expects them to think. But take thought means, like many of you know, take thought means to have anxiety or to have worry, to have fears and anxiety, dread, worriness. And so Jesus is chiding his disciples because they are malfocused and therefore worried. Now, what are they worried about? Well, what did he tell them not to worry about? Twice he said to them, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we put on? What shall we drink, or what shall we eat, or what shall we put on? He says that twice, verse 25 and verse number 31, and then tells them again in verse 34, take therefore no thought, referencing what he's already told them not to take thought of. So here's what we know. We know that the disciples at that time in their followership of Jesus. Now, stop here just a second. They could have only been following him a matter of weeks, short months at the most. If you go back into chapter number five where the Sermon on the Mount starts, by Matthew's account in Matthew chapter four, you have Jesus choosing his disciples. And so he has begun to choose the disciples, not all of them yet, but he's begun to choose his disciples, and he has also begun to do miracles. You'll read there at the end of chapter number four how that he was healing those that were diseased. He was dealing with the demon-possessed. So Jesus had already begun his miracle-working ministry, and yet the disciples are at this state where they are having anxiety, where they are having worry, they are fretting. And what are they fretting about? What did uh, Jesus say they were fretting about? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? How's this going to work out? Now, to be fair to the disciples, we have to understand also that these disciples were, I suppose, for the most part, we don't know about every one of them, but we do know about some of the first he chose, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And many believe that out of the 12, they call them the Galilee seven, that many of, uh, that, uh, that seven of those 12 were of Galilee and more than likely, like Peter and Andrew, James and John, were fishermen and made their livelihood fishing. And so now, if you go back to Matthew chapter four, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's the way John says it. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He goes on a ways and he sees the sons of Zebedee and they are cleaning the nets on their father's boat. And there Jesus said to them, follow me. The scripture says they left their nets, they left the boat, they left their dad, and they began to follow Jesus. If you read Luke's account, in Luke chapter 5, you're going to read where it says that these disciples forsook all and followed him. So they had a livelihood to make. Uh, but they turned their back on the livelihood so that they might follow Jesus. Now, you've got to understand also that some of these, more than one, might have been married. As far as, far as we know, uh, Peter was married. 
Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Nobody's going to get into the deal where he gets the mother-in-law and doesn't get the wife. So we know that he had a wife. And if a man has a wife, he has a responsibility. Somebody say amen. If a man has a wife, he might have children. If a man, this ought to be preached all across the land, that if a man has wife and children, he has a responsibility to them. And so these men were apparently responsible men, and they had forsaken all so that they might follow Jesus. Now, I've thought about this, and I've talked to, in fact, I talked to one young man in ministry that his dad was from up in Nova Scotia, and his dad was in the fishing industry. I said, hey, help me out with uh, trying to explain something by way of illustration. What about the people in the fishing industry? What about people that are people of the sea? Your dad knows them and knows the business. I said, are they just a delightful, nice, uh, upright bunch of people? Is that what they are? And he said, oh, Brother Sam, come on. You know, he said, it's a rough bunch. It's a rough bunch. And from what I understand about it, I'm not trying to pass judgment or be ugly. If you have family that were fishermen, but more than likely they were difficult people. But anyway, I'm just saying the history of them is there's some rough and tough and mean and uh, vulgar type people. Okay, so if that is so about them or the disciples have been around that, they go from that to following the holy, harmless, sinless Son of God. <laughs> they go from whatever company they had been used to, whether they were all vulgar or not. Let's say they might have been good, upright citizens. But they go from that to following Jesus, God made manifest in the flesh. And I'm thinking about it. I try to use my imagination on this. If I went from the kind of Christian home that I was raised in to following Jesus Christ, as much as I love my dad and my mother and appreciate the testimony they had before me and before their children, I'm going to say I'm sure I'd recognize the vast difference between where I was and where I now am. In the presence bodily of Jesus Christ, I'm going to repeat it again, who knew no sin who was the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate Son of God. And they are from where they used to be in the fishing industry and whatever else industry. And they are now following, well, Matthew was a tax collector. Come on, we know he came from a rough crowd as a publican. And so they go from that to following Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it had to be that every once in a while they stood around and said, man, can you believe where we were and where we are? I mean, this man, he never says anything out of turn. He never is, there never is a vulgarity. He has never lost his temper. He has never cursed anyone. This man is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He is separate from all else that are sinners. Can you believe we're called to him? Besides that, the power over demons and the power over disease and the power over affliction, the power over the elements... Uh, calming the steam, uh, sea and, and calming the wind and such as that. And can you believe where we are? I mean, I am totally shocked that I am in the presence of such an one as Jesus. And the other said, yeah. But one of them, yeah, yeah, it is amazing. It truly is. But one of them must have spoke up and said, well, yeah, it's amazing. But I don't know about you, but I don't know. I'm, I'm worried myself. What are you worried about? Thomas might have been him. I don't know. What, well, what, what do you mean you're worried? Well, I'll tell you why I'm worried. We haven't had any employment. 
Nothing in your Bible or my Bible says that every Friday they got paid for being there with Jesus. Now send us back home and take care of the family. All Jesus said, as far as we can tell from the whole Bible record, is follow me. That's what he said. <laughs> and that's what they were supposed to do. And the disciples are, I, I can hear them discussing and saying, you know, I mean, I, I, okay, so fine. We've done so far so good, but I'm just saying in the long haul, we don't know how long we're going to be following him. They didn't know it was going to be about a three-plus year stint in following Jesus physically, bodily on this earth. They didn't know that. They didn't sign a contract, said this will be good for six months or a year or two years. Neither was there any agreement about their compensation and how they're supposed to take care of things. Jesus simply said, like he continues to say, follow me. And now they're saying, apparently, they're saying, yeah, we're fine. Let's follow him. That's good. Yeah, well, yes, it's been exciting. Yes, it's amazing that we're in his presence. But what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we supposed to wear? I mean, how's this going to work out? They didn't see any money floating around. Jesus would teach them. He'd say, the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not a place to lay his head. Now, that's encouraging if you're worried about finances and money and provision for the necessities of life, isn't it? And so the disciples are saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? I mean, how's this supposed to work out? I'm sure we're following Jesus, but eventually, I mean, where are we going to get the food to take care of us? Our number has grown. I mean, first he chose Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, and then he added that till he had 12 uh, disciples that were with him. I mean, what are we supposed to do for eating and paying our bills and taking care of the family, those that had a family? What are we supposed to do about this? You know, in chapter 7 it said, if ye being evil know how to give good gifts. Chapter 7 still the Sermon on the Mount, discipling his disciples. If you know how to give good gifts unto your children, shall not your heavenly Father much more give you what you need? That's what he said in chapter 7. So it could have been several of them were parents. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? I mean, it's all good native. If you know what Jewish people are like when they're concerned about food, water, and necessities of life, read the Old Testament in the wilderness and you'll see it's not like, well, How's this going to work? No, it was murmuring. It was an undercurrent of discontent. It was a, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction. It was murmur, 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 murmur. And that's the way they were. And I can hear these Jewish men that are now concerned. Yeah, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? I mean, what do you think? They had a cheerful attitude about it? Doesn't sound like it. Not the way Jesus addressed it anyway. And so what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Now, here's what Jesus then has to do. What Jesus is going to do in our passage is clear their vision. Because clearly, they are malfocused. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. If they were properly focused, they would be concerned about fulfilling the high purposes of His Father. The high purposes of God. Excuse me just a second. What are the high purposes of God? Well, the high purposes of God have to do everything to do with the propagation of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, 
that he is the Savior and that he is the way, the truth, and the light at life. And no man can come unto the Father by him. Does everybody listen to this? Uh, their high purpose of God was to make sure that they understood the truth of who Jesus is and were being prepared to propagate that gospel when Jesus ascended back to uh, the Father in heaven. Now, don't miss this. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the disciples, from what they were taught by Jesus, were to lay the foundation of truth upon which we are still building to this very day. And so that the apostle Paul calls the apostles the foundation, Jesus the chief cornerstone, and all the building is to be done upon that. And think about that, ladies and gentlemen. If your pastor is preaching the Bible, if a guest preacher or missionary comes in here and preaches the Word of God, do you know what we're doing? We are still building upon the foundation, the doctrinal foundation that was laid by those apostles and where they get it. They got it from Jesus. And so what they, listen to this, what they have to do with is so significant because it has everything to do with the perpetuation of the faith from one generation to the one generation to another generation and so that the gospel can be spread to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's the job of the disciples. Now listen to this carefully. That, my friend, is a high and lofty calling. These are the high purposes of God. People might look and read the news and they think that the high-level stuff in this world is taking place in the Oval Office. They may think that the high-position stuff is taking place in the Pentagon. And they may think it's being done in the Capitol Building. They may think the high-level stuff is being done in the United States Supreme Court. Now look, I'm not minimizing any of the institutions that I just named. But if you look at life through the lens of the Bible, then you understand the highest business on earth is the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the biggest business on earth. That's the highest business on earth. And if you say, I'm not so sure about this. There's a lot of great and significant things happening in the world. Then you're not getting your view through the scripture. And therefore, you are malfocused. And you think lesser things are more important than more important things like Jesus and the propagation of the gospel. I feel like sitting down and amen in myself. That's a fact. That's the truth. That is the, that is the high level purpose of the Father. The, pro, the work of the gospel, the propagation. You look at the last words from Jesus to this earth. You know who they were to? His churches. His churches. The last thing he had to say to this earth wasn't to Rome. And the seed of Rome, uh -uh. it wasn't. It wasn't to the big conglomeration of nations. No, the last thing Jesus had to say, hey, from heaven to this earth was to his churches. And don't you let the devil and don't you let the world and the philosophy of this world make you think that if you're part of a local New Testament church, well, there aren't many churches, there aren't many Christians anymore in this country, there aren't many that believe it's that important. In fact, I was talking to one of the brothers before church tonight, one of the saddest things that I see in the United States of America is to be driving to preach somewhere and see on a Sunday night and see Baptist churches sitting dark and empty and no services on the Lord's Day night. Not anymore. It's not that important. Not that important. Go be with your family. Go meet your neighbors. Go see a movie. Go do whatever. It's sad. You know what they're saying? They're minimizing the significance of the life of a New Testament church. 
And if I read my Bible right, whatever we're supposed to do in the way of assembling, we probably should be doing it more as we see the day approaching, not less. That's for sure. It's the high-level purposes of God. So let me try to illustrate like this. Jesus wants his disciples living, thinking, understanding the high-level purpose of their fellowship. Why they are following him, why he is teaching them, where this is going to lead. Uh, none of them envisioned themselves fulfilling the roles that they envisioned. Uh, Peter would have, couldn't possibly have seen what the Lord had in store for him at that time. Uh, John couldn't possibly believe that he would one day be on the Isle of Patmos and give us the most uh, dynamic uh, piece of prophecy and the prophetic picture that could possibly be imagined from that. And James could not have believed or understood that he would write such a letter that would be so controversial to some, so helpful to those that see the truth. Is everybody with me here? All right, and so here are the high purposes of God, and here's where Jesus' disciples are because this is where their focus is and where their malfocus has led them. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Yeah, what are we going to wear? How's this going to work out? <laughs> yeah, well, sure, he's incredible. Sure, he's amazing. Sure, he's the Son of God. Sure, we know he's the Messiah. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? How's this going to work out? So there, look at me, evil eye has them focused right here. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he says, uh, is not the life more than meat? And the body than raiment? Yeah, see, because Jesus might have been over there doing something. He knew what they were doing here. He always did. I love it when you see that the disciples thought they were talking about something that he might be knowing about. And before they had a chance to tell him, he's calling them out on it and explaining to them where their thinking is. Because he knew. He knew all men. He knew what was in man. He needed not that he should testify to him of man. He didn't and doesn't need anybody to tell him about anybody. Somebody say amen, please. It's, that's true. And so he knew right where they were thinking. And they're over here thinking while he's trying to get them over there, the high-level purposes of God, they're over here saying, what are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? It's going to work out. I'm sure. Yeah, it's great. But what good will that do if we starve to death? <laughs> what good will that do? you got to understand, they didn't go to Spickens to turn on the water. Water supply was a major day-to-day-to-day-to-day deal there. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? How this is going to work out? <clears throat> so Jesus' job then is to take them from here to there. He said to them while they are here, Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? You saw the parentheses down there? Jesus said, See where you are? After all these things do the Gentiles seek. Come on, if Jesus calls somebody to follow him and understand the high-level purposes of the Father, he certainly doesn't expect that people or that person so that they might be here concerned about primarily what the rest of the Gentiles are, what the rest and the world of the Gentiles is concerned about. What are they concerned about? Eat, drink, clothes, low-level stuff. Now, if I'm making it sound like I don't care about eating, I've lied to you because I care about eating. It's just not my primary concern. It's not supposed to be my primary. I like clothes. Sure, my wife likes clothes. Great shopper. This woman's a great shopper. She developed a philosophy that if they're having a sale and you don't take advantage of it, you can't save money. 
So you have to go take advantage of the sales, whether you need it or not. Is that the way we work or not? No, that's not the way. <laughs> yeah, close. Okay, I mentioned, uh, I, I kind of hesitate to mention this kind of stuff, but in traveling, listen to people talk. Usually I'm going out on Saturday or Friday, and that's when most everybody else is coming home on airplanes, you know. And I've listened to them for years and years and years. I've listened to them talk. Well, hey, yeah, we're going to get home. And basically it turns out this. Here's the weekend. They've got all planned out. I, I've even heard them say, I'm going to get stoned on Friday night, sleep late on Saturday. We've got a place for eating and drinking that we like to go to and shopping on Saturday, sleep it off on Sunday, and then go back to work Monday. There are many people that live just like that in this vicious cycle. Don't, don't look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. There are many people that live exactly like that. Probably some in this room at one time, that was your life. I, I'm not accusing, I'm just saying that's very possible. And Jesus said, you're going to be my disciples and be concerned about the very same things they're concerned about? You're concerned about these low-level issues of life? These are things that are common to everyone. And what Jesus is calling them to is a work that is high above the low-level, common, day-to-day -day issues of life. And so he's got to get his disciples, watch this, where their focus is not there, but here. Because you know what he said in this verse? In this passage, you know what he said? He said, I mean, this is amazing. He said, basically, you can't be here and there. You can't be. He didn't say you shouldn't be. He said you can't be. No man can. You cannot serve God and mammon. You, you cannot. You'll love the one, hate the other, hold the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot be here this is amazing stuff. You cannot be here and there at the same time. <laughs> I can just tell you're overwhelmed by that. It's just such a revelation that you can't be here and be there at the same time. So Jesus is at work to take them from here to there since they can't be at the same place. Many people think you can. I remember preaching one of the first sermons I ever preached, if you could call it that. And my aunt and uncle were there, my dad's uh, brother and his wife. And they were there that morning, and I preached about Peter following Jesus, and Jesus said, get thee behind me, so he's supposed to be behind Jesus following, not in his face, and all of that kind of thing. So I did the best I could at that particular time. And I said, basically what I was saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've you got to follow Jesus. There's no half-heartedness. There's no in-between place. You're going to follow him or not follow him. And my aunt said, you know, Sam, I appreciate your... Uh, sermon today, but she said, I kind of disagree with that because I always kind of considered myself to be somewhere in between because I feel like I fit fine here and I feel like I fit fine with the Lord and I just feel like I'm somewhere on that middle road. Now, I didn't have enough sense to know what to say to her at that time, but since that time I figured it out, well, that's good. That's good if he says you could do that. But if he says you can't do that, then you can't do that. I don't care if you're my little sweet aunt that I love a lot. She's a precious lady, but she can't do it either. You're nowhere in between. Come on. You're going to live for the things of this world. You're going to live for the things of God. I, Jesus didn't say, you should not serve God and mammon. He did not say that. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot live here and there. You cannot do that. 
It doesn't matter how people want to justify themselves. Jesus said you cannot. End of discussion. I know you'd be happy with that because I keep laboring on it. So I'll try to move on <laughs> from that point. So what is Jesus going to do to get them from here to there? What does he do? <laughs> if the disciples are over here, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? If they'd have got their heads up and looked, they'd have seen birds flying through the air. Every one of which, Jesus said, their father fed every day. Consider the fowl of the air. They don't develop a harvest. They don't bring in a harvest. They are dependent upon God every day. And he said, my father feeds the fowls. Stop there just a second. Your father feeds the fowls of the air. Are ye not much better than they? Now, if you go to Seattle in that area, they'll you say to them, we're better than birds. They'd say, well, we don't know for sure. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> birds and bugs and all kinds of stuff they're concerned about. But I'm just saying, you and I know that Jesus didn't die for birds. Come on, friend. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And so Jesus said, are you not much better than they? Here's another thing I noticed. It, this blew me away when I finally saw it. That in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter number 6, there are 12 times, 12 times, Jesus says to the disciples, my father is your father. Your father. Your father. Your father. Your father. 12 times in chapter 6. When you step back and look at it, preacher, as I did that, it made me mad at myself that I'd been so long and not seen that, that Jesus is crying out here and said, the answer is understand who you are. Who is your father? You, you mean to tell me you're going to devote yourself to the high purposes of my heavenly Father and you don't trust Him to take care of things like what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear? That's an insult to the character of your Father. And He says to them 16 times in three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, 16 times, your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father, so that the Sermon on the Mount literally screams out and says, why are you worried? My Father is your Father. And that's what Jesus is doing. Calling them from the anxiety and the worry to trust their Father and said, your Father feeds birds. Birds. And you're not sure He'll take care of you if you move from here to there. But He feeds birds. So we're here in Ohio. Pennsylvania's just up the roadways, isn't it? And uh, I wish I had the documentation for this. But I loaned the article to a preacher who promised to give it back. Which he would have, except he loaned it to another preacher. Need I go on with this thing? So I don't have the documentation. But I'm, I read this in the late 90s. And it was about the time of the death of Sam Walton of Walmart fame. And he was going to become one of the richest men in the country, if not the world, uh, even back then. And so um, this man in Pennsylvania was a man whose life was in numbers. So I don't know if he's an accountant. 
uh, engineer of some kind in mathematics, I don't, I don't know, but his life is all about numbers. So since he was interested in numbers, and since he was also a member of the Audubon Society and cared about birds, and since he also was a Christian and was reading Matthew chapter 6, where we're reading, uh, about the same time he read the article about Sam Walton and his vast wealth. So here's what this Christian man decided to do. He said, I'm going to do some research, and he got him a team of three or four other men together, and they came to a determination back in the 90s of the bird population of the world. And so they came up with what they thought could, they could present as a credible amount of the bird population of the world. Vast, incredible, wild. And so they, they did that, and they did it seriously. They tried to do it in a way that if they went to court, they could present their case. They weren't planning on going to court. I'm just saying that's how serious they were about it. And so anyway, they decided that. Then they decided to see how much, if you took all of Sam Walton's known assets and turned them into cash to buy bird food, how much would it cost to buy food for the birds of the world? And they found if they liquidated all of his assets and used it to buy bird food, that Sam Walton's wealth could not feed the birds of this world for one day. And in thinking about that, he said, and my father feeds them every day. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. Your father feeds, you may not be very excited, don't stand in the pew and start shouting, it might disrupt things in here. But your heavenly father feeds the birds of this world every single day. Are ye not much better than they? As he's trying to elevate them from here to there. And then he calls attention to the lilies of the field. See how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't do anything themselves. They're just out there. G. Campbell Morgan, you probably read from him a little bit. G. Campbell Morgan points out that he's no doubt talking about the hula lily of the plains of Palestine and how these hula lily would grow wild out there. And the hula lily be sort of like people going to see the Azalea Festival in Muskogee, Oklahoma. People drive for miles and miles and drive through this 27-acre park. And it's at the time the azaleas are blooming and just, I guess, traffic jams and everything. You go to blue bonnet places in Texas where the blue bonnets grow. And they say that people drive by there and look at the fields of blue bonnets. Well, they said the hula lily, according to Mr. G. Campbell Morgan and others, the hula lily is the most magnificent of beauty. And they say that it looks beautiful out in the field. And the closer you look, the more beautiful it comes. It's magnified. Then if you could put it under some magnification, the beauty just explodes to another level. And, the, and people would come from everywhere. And the beauty of the hula lily lasts two days. And after two days, when they begin to decline, workers rush into the prairies and they begin to gather up the hula lily. They put them on backpacks, donkey backs, carts and such as that. And then they cart them into the city or the towns and the villages and they will sell them to bakers. And bakers will buy them. Why? Because it's wonderful for a certain seasonal product a uh, uh, bakery product that they would make and sell to the people. So it'd be beneficial to the baker as well. And he would take those hula lilies, he'd put them in the oven, and they say it, cre it creates intense but not sustained heat. 
And it was perfect for this one item that was just a favorite with everyone that they would celebrate around. And, and you could put that hula lily, uh, that a bunch of hula lilies in the fire, and it would burn and create the perfect heat, and they would make that product. They'd pull the hula lilies out, dump the ashes over here, push them all in, and push them over here, throw them out, and they're the next thing you know, when it's all said and done, there's a vast pile of ashes over here. Can't you hear somebody coming that doesn't know what's going on and says, man, Mr. Baker, what is the deal with this big pile of ashes here? Oh, those are the hula lilies. For two days, they're out in the field, blooming, showing beauty. People are marveling at them, amazed at them. After two days, they decline, and this is where they end up. And Jesus said, my father made them. They're more glorious than Solomon when he came out in his most special day with his most special garb. Come on, let your imagination go. What a man like Solomon must have worn on those very, very special days. The kind of garment he had on, bedecked with the jewels and intertwined with silver and gold thread and all of this kind of thing. And Jesus said, this hula lily right here has more beauty than Solomon in all his glory. And the closer you look at the hula lily, the beautifuler, <laughs> that's not a word, more beautiful it becomes. And the closer you look at Solomon, the uglier he gets. True or false? Absolutely. And you know what Jesus said? My father made that for two days of beauty. That didn't just happen. It was a result of evolution. Jesus said, my father did that for two days of beauty. And you're worried that if you give yourself to his high purposes, you're worried if he'll take care of you? He closed the hula lily? And you're going to get involved in the high-level purposes of your father? And he won't take care of you? What kind of father are you saying he is? Think about that. My mom died in 2013. My dad died 30 years earlier, 1983. Uh, I, had a, I was the fifth of six. A sister just older than me died of cancer about... 11 years ago, and so when my mom died, there's five of us, and, and we all got together. And my oldest brother, he took care of mom's estate and everything, took care of settling everything, just acted like a wonderful big brother, taking care of the business. And uh, so when it was time, everything was settled and done after mom had gone on to be with the Lord. She was uh, three weeks shy of 96 years of age. And so my brother got us all together, and then he divided up mom's estate. And so he divided up the resources and the, uh, what oil royalty she had, which was nice for her. If, if my brothers and sisters weren't so greedy and they would have let me all take, take care of all of it, it would be nice for me too. But anyway, they wanted their share. So anyway, we divided up into five parts. You know how that goes. And so everything's settled and we're sitting there talking. My sisters are sitting right down here and they're visiting. My brothers and I are talking about their upbringing. They're eight and ten years older than me. And so we're talking about things, and I said, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, you know, I, I remember that we had it tough at times. My dad was a sharecropper. And sometimes uh, the wheat was up and the cattle market was down. Sometimes they were both down at the same time. A few good times, they were both up at the same time. And uh, so I, I can remember times that I got one pair of jeans to start school. 
you know, one pair. Now, Sammy, don't call me Sammy now, please. Oh. But anyway, you, you got this one pair of jeans. They got to last you till Christmas. Don't you go out there on the playground and play football. And so I knew times were tough. I only got one pair of jeans. So I didn't go play football for a week or so. And so anyway, then you know how that would go. So, and I, I can remember tough times. I can remember my dad, you know, he wasn't rolling money. We didn't go ask dad for money. Our, us boys didn't. My sisters, they had no conscience about it whatsoever. But us boys, we never went to ask dad for money. No, and, and there wasn't much. But they had it worse when they were younger than I did. And I said, let me ask you a question. Because dad never owned a house till I went off to Bible college. I was the last kid at home. And, they bought a house in town, and he never owned his own home. And I said, did you ever worry that you wouldn't have a roof over your head? Did you ever worry that you wouldn't have enough food to eat? They knew what it was to eat the same thing over and over, night after night for quite a while. And uh, so did you, did you ever worry about you're not going to have enough to eat, you're not going to have clothes to go to school? Did you ever worry about that? And you know what my brothers did? They looked at me like they used to look at me when they said I was a kid. I asked the dumbest questions of anybody they ever knew. And so they looked at me like that. And I said, did you ever worry about that? And my brother said, no. My sakes, no. We never worried about that. And I said, and why not? Well, Sam, you know why not. Because we knew Dad was going to take care of everything. He's not going to let us do without what we have to have to function. We knew we were going to eat. We may not know what it was going to be, but we knew we were going to eat. We knew we were going to have a roof over our head. We knew Dad would take care of things. And my youngest brother looked at me and said, so did you? Like, he's mad at me for even asking that question, you know. <laughs> and he said, so did you? I said, no, never did. Never did. I worried about my sisters killing me. They threatened to kill me sometimes during the night and all that kind of thing. Uh, but I didn't, no, I didn't worry about that. Never worried about it. Never did. You know why? Because of the kind of father we had. We trust our dad. Daddy? Not, not have food for us? You kidding me? Daddy not getting us ready to go to school somehow? Daddy, no roof over our head? Are you serious? Not the kind of dad we had. None of us ever worried about it. And this is one of those much more things. If you have an earthly father who himself is a sinner in need of the grace of God, and he knows how to take care of his children, how much more, Jesus is saying, will your father take care of you? You might want to remember this the next time he calls on you to take a step of faith and to take that next step of obedience and to exercise obedience in the matters of giving and serving and time and your entire life. Instead of stopping and saying, I don't know how that could work out. Are you given to the high level purposes of your father? Then you don't have to worry about how it works out. You don't have to be wringing your hands. Jesus said, oh ye of little faith. <laughs> and don't you love how he ends this chapter? He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, they shall be added unto you. How simple is this, friends? I said, how simple is this? And there may be some that look at 
the economy of our country right now. There may be some that look at the confusion and turmoil of our country. There may be some that are looking at their investments right now. There might be some that are writing out a check to the church and wondering, should I be doing this? Because things are so unstable and uncertain. Would this be the right thing to do? Let me just tell you something. Jesus said, you seek first my Father's kingdom and what's right by him. He's, he's not talking about you being saved and his righteousness. He's talking to people that are saved. Seek you first the kingdom of God and what is right by him, his righteousness, what's right by God. And all these things, they shall be added to you. That's the word of God. If I stood up here tonight or this morning or tomorrow night and I said, I want to preach to you tonight out of John 3.16, I'm going to tell you why that is not a credible passage. John 3.16 has been misunderstood and it really doesn't mean what it says. And as a matter of fact, it's spurious in this way and that way. And John 3.16 is not to be taken like it has been taken. Your pastor would then say, well, uh, Sam Davison, he would quit calling me brother. Uh, Sam Davison, how about we get you back to Oklahoma or worse yet, Texas. And, and we'll get you out of here as fast as we can because you don't belong here. Because we believe the Word of God. Well, that's just what he ought to do. That's what he ought to do. And he had, ought to have somebody whoop me on the way out, too. That's what he ought to do. But you know what's strange to me? People can listen to the words of Jesus. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, and not believe it, and remain a member in good standing of most Baptist churches. Well, yeah, but John 3 said, yeah, but nothing. Those words came from the same person. And I wonder how it is that people trust him with the eternal destiny of their soul in John 3.16, but can't trust them with material things and finances and money, etc., etc., when they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You mean it's okay to trust him with the eternal destiny of my soul, but I can't trust him with a few bucks? I've got so much money, I can't get it out of my pocket. You can't trust him with this. You can trust him with the destiny. John 3, 16, we believe that. We stand for that. You're a heretic if you don't believe it. But if you don't believe Matthew 6, 33, well, you'll grow. It'll work out. What do you think? So Jesus did that to do what? Clear their vision. So they wouldn't be focused there, but focused here. Lord, I'm not accusing anybody in this room. I'm not in a position to do that. But if there are some in this room that know tonight that they might be getting as malfocused now as the disciples were then, and that ought to be corrected, I pray they wouldn't walk out the door with no response to you. I pray, O oh Lord, that there would be the humility of heart to say, O oh Lord, the same Jesus of John 3.16, to whom I trust the eternal destiny of my soul can be trusted as I walk through this life. 
and need some of the mammon of this world from time to time. I need a little money, or I need some food, or I need some clothes. I need the basic necessities of this life. By the way, as I go about doing what is right by God, I'm going to need some of the necessities of life. Jesus, oh God, has made it so clear that if we give ourselves to what is right by you, Jesus promised, promised that these things that we have need of would be added to us. That's either true or it's not true. And we know, oh God, in our soul, in our heart, we know it's true. If some aren't living that, and there needs to be a reviving again, there needs to be a correction of the vision that um, obstruction needs to be removed called anxiety, worry, fear. That needs to be removed. It could be somebody's watching this live stream tonight, and they're fearful of all the issues and the circumstances of life, but fear is not of you. It's the opposite of what you have for your people. Oh God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and that there would be a reviving again, that there would be a lifting up of the eyes and focusing on the high-level purposes of, of you, our Father, and that we would give ourselves to do your will. I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation. If God's dealt with the heart, maybe you just need to say, I, I, I've, got, I've got to make sure that I'm committed to do the will of my Father. You want to come right now? If God's dealt with your heart. Fear, worry, anxiety. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah.